building trust with them, building a relationship with them and meeting their other needs so that they can allow you the half an hour, an hour in the week to do the addiction work. And that's like at our level, we are the first rung on the ladder for a lot of people when they're looking at dealing with their addiction. Welcome to Social Fabric. I'm your host, Andreas Splendori, and this week my guest is Don Russell. Don is the head of services at the Analifi Drug Project. Named Woman of the Year by Image Magazine in 2018, Don is a wonderfully passionate advocate for Safer From Arm campaign. She's a realist with a powerful, empathic and human touch. In this conversation, she shares a reason for joining Analifi, as well as explaining what the day-to-day work of the organization offers people with addiction. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and a few stars in iTunes, share it and subscribe to the podcast. It will help us carry on doing it. It is available on all platforms as well as socialfabric.ie. The program is also broadcast every Monday at 4.30pm on Dublin's Near FM 90.3. You can get in touch by email at infosocialfabric.ie or on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I hope you enjoy it. Can I call you up a while on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Just sit and talk a while. Testing. It's so long Testing. now since I've little voice. Do I? <laughs> Jesus, my colleagues wouldn't say that. <laughs> now, how about that? That's better, yeah. Yeah, cool. Picking seven songs is really difficult. I know. Um, <laughs> I was like, only seven? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I know, but it's a great way to, for me to understand you guys. And yeah, just to, it's just great. Get the conversation moving. And, uh, because there are some people who don't like music at all. Like if you ask for seven songs, they're like, oh. They wouldn't have a clue, yeah. Oh, it's incredible. But I know, when I spoke to Tony, like he's mad into oh. his music, so he found it that hard was, as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, look, we're going to start. Mm-hmm. Don Russell, thanks a million. Thank you. For uh, having me here in your office. Yeah. What I think I'm going to start, like, just to, as a premise, I, I knew about you because I spoke to Tony before here, and I'm very, very keen on what you guys do here, and we will get into a bit more. Uh, but what I saw you the other night at the Eco Chamber mm-hmm. podcast, you and Gareth um, McGovern, I was really impressed with it, and I'm not just blowing your trumpet but I was really impressed with what you were saying and what you were on stage but it wasn't a staged yeah uh, conversation and there's a few questions that I'm going to ask you on that particular one but then I thought okay it would be really nice to get the message out a little bit more but starting from who's Dawn and what we do who you are yeah. and why you do what you do so I suppose if you just give me a bit of a background about you Thanks. you mentioned you're from Tipperary yeah I'm from Tipperary and I'm from a really rural place in Tipperary, but the nearest town to me growing up that I went to school in has a pretty big drug problem. So kind of, you know, it's kind of obvious how I ended up where I ended up really, because I kind of grew up around heroin and understanding and knowing people using heroin. And then, um, yeah, I suppose there's lots of different things that make me tick, but I've spent 13 years working for the Analiffy and I'm 34 so it's a huge chunk of my life so it's kind of hard to describe who I am without talking about the work that we do because sure. it's pretty much interchangeable on some levels <laughs> yeah okay but before we yeah. get to that just give yeah. me a bit of an idea of you're growing up in the little yeah. town in Tipperary so we grew up my family is pretty small it's very uh matriarchal family I have two sisters and a very strong mother so I grew up around women and a really strong aunt who's very close to us as well 
And I grew up on a dairy farm with literally nobody around. Like (laughs) our nearest neighbor was my aunt. She was a few kilometers away. So my childhood was just full of freedom and possibilities and running around fields and having pet cows and flying around haystacks and being pretty disconnected to the actual world, I'd say, because I didn't really go to town except once a month. Um, now, this was only like I was born in 1985. So, <laughs> so it was really idyllic. And I'm really glad, like, obviously, there's lots of things with rural living. There's isolation and it's hard to access services and there's a lot of poverty. Um, we certainly weren't people who had a lot of money. People always perceive farmers as moneyed people, but you tend to have livestock, not money. <laughs> so there was a lot of struggling. Um, but it's, I think sometimes it's easier to struggle in a rural environment because you've got a good community around you. So, yeah, and then when I came into my kind of teenage years and I had to start finding ways to get close to problems and risks and trouble and all the things, it was harder. Like, I had to work really hard (laughs) to get lifts to places, to discos, to drinking, to all those things. So, like, my kind of teenage years would have been, like, really heavily influenced with music because I would have spent a lot of my time in my room listening to music um you couldn't just walk down the street and go meet your friends or go to a disco so it was kind of different um and then yeah then when I went to secondary school I kind of mentioned earlier that was in the big town it's a town called Clamel in Tipperary which most people kind of know because Bulmer's comes yeah, from there <laughs> so market town for yeah. Years and years, yeah yeah and it's a good it's a great town actually for music as well it really is and for culture but it's also a great town for a good bit of antisocial behavior and kind of like any town but there's a lot of drug and alcohol problems in the town and uh, so it was a real kind of shift for me when I was a teenager and I started going to school and I was exposed to different things and it was a real eye-opener um, but a good one but definitely a culture shock and that's when I started listening to punk music as well. So it was all very like <laughs> an abrupt uh, left turn away from childhood into adolescence. <laughs> and I'm trying to get a sense. So your two sisters, are they older yeah. or younger? Much, well, much older. They're not. They're very young women. Uh, yeah, my next sister to me is eight years older than me. And then my eldest sister is 12 years older than me. Right, and so you're pretty much... I was in menopause, <laughs> baby. Yeah, my mom had me when she was 45. Wow. So lots of, so they, they both left home at 18 to go to college. So for a long time, it was me and my mom um, on this farm. <laughs> I love the way you describe it. Um, a teenage, you, you went and found, you know, you had, you had to find, you had to work hard to find trouble. Oh, yeah. What would you mean by that? Like, was it in school? Like, you just felt, I need to get out of this farm. I need to explore. Kind of, I suppose... <clears throat> I I think a big influence on me is my mom. Everybody is influenced by their mother. But because my mom was a bit older when she had me, she had a different kind of relationship with me. Like she was much more mature as a parent. So she was she was able to communicate with me in ways that maybe younger parents wouldn't communicate with their kids because they're frightened about telling them the truth or whatever. So mom always would have talked to me about different kinds of people in society. And if somebody was having an affair or if somebody was, you know, a lot of the time in rural communities, um, back when I was growing up, people would go missing for a while and they'd be sent off to England to have an abortion or they'd, you know, there was lots of things happening in the community. That happens everywhere. And mom would kind of be pretty honest with me in the most age-appropriate way she could. So I kind of grew up having a good understanding of the kind of 
dark side of life. Um, also, she worked in a psychiatric hospital. She worked on reception. And a lot, she worked nights. So a lot of the time, if she had nobody to leave me with, she'd bring me in to work with her. And I'd like, you know, do my coloring books in her office and fall asleep on the couch. And there was, it was, there was some closed units in the psychiatric hospital where people who had more severe psychiatric issues would be locked away for want of a nicer way of saying. But then there was a lot of more patients who had more moderate issues and they would be walking around and chatting to you. So I got to know what schizophrenia was and I got to know what like multiple personality disorders were because I was chatting to people who had them. Um, and also one of the things I really think about a lot, especially working for the women in, in Analyphian and other things, I got to know a lot of women during that time in the psychiatric hospital who were literally dumped there by their families for reasons that were nothing to do with their mental health or their emotional health. There was a kind of a, a thing in the 70s and 80s, and I'm sure it happened into the 90s, where maybe wives who were more problematic to husbands who were maybe meeting new women would be seen as having some kind of an anxiety disorder. And there was kind of corrupt things that happened where people got uh, sectioned when they shouldn't have. And I kind of knew all this when I was 10 because it would, it would unravel, it would become apparent. And again, mom would be honest and kind of explain things to me. So I kind of knew I had probably a bit of an adult understanding of the world. So by the time I got to 14, I was like, right, <laughs> I want to find it out for myself, <laughs> not just secondhand information. So, you know. Brilliant. Okay, well, just give me a first song, which was Green Day, yeah. uh, She. Why yeah. did you pick that song? Green Day are my soundtrack to my entire life. Uh, I have them tattooed to my forearm. That big piece there is a Green Day tattoo. So they're like literally the band. Everyone has, well, hopefully, I hope for people, everyone has a band that defines how much they love music. And for me, it's Green Day. Um, I, I actually bought, there used to be, I'll tell the story even though it's long, but it's not many people I tell it to can have had this experience. So I'm like, when did I, where did I grow up? But when I was young, you, you couldn't really go to a CD shop to buy CDs. Um, CDs were just coming in, but you didn't have access to it. It was an hour away. So there was this thing called, I think it was called Britannia, where you would get them in the post. You would fill out your order form, send it away with a postal order from the post office and you get your CDs back. But what it meant was you couldn't ever listen. And I, we had RTE 1 and RTE 2 and we had Radio 1. So I was not hearing John Peel or anyone like him from the BBC telling me about music. I had Garth Brooks and Randy Travis and maybe if I was lucky, Slim Whitman playing in the house. So what it meant was I would pick albums that I wanted to buy out of my pocket money based on their cover. What looked like maybe I might like it. And when I was nine, Green Day released an album called Dookie, which has a whole cartoon cover on it. It's all cartoon uh, animated. So I was like, oh, I'd probably like that. I'm nine. I was a big Take That fan at the time. So I was like, this would probably fit with my genre of music. So I sent off my 10 pounds or whatever. And I got back this 90s punk CD that basically is all about sexuality and rebellion and masturbation and loads of things that a nine-year-old shouldn't be listening to. But... I don't know if you've ever heard the album, but you put it on and it's a it's a typical one, two, three, four punk punch in the face for 10 songs. And I remember putting it on and thinking, Jesus, what is this? So and she is on that album. And I loved it when I was a kid just because of how it sounded. 
But as I got older, I understood from listening to interviews with Green Day, listening to their lyrics, like they're a huge feminist band. They're three guys, but they're a really big feminist punk band. And a lot of the lyrics that Billy Joe, the, the lead singer, writes are from a female perspective. And some are from his wife's perspective and some are just from random women that he tries to get inside the head of and explain their perspective. And I love that. Like, I love... Because so much of music is male-dominated. Um, and that's just the way it is right now. But to have these three guys spending some of their time getting across a really feminist kind of ideology in their music, I love. And she, for me, is like the perfect song. She, she screams in silence. around 14 when you start to really kind of go okay I need to go and find it for myself find yeah. it for myself and why would that where did that lead you to school wise college wise how how did that develop that sense of okay I'm out of here I'm gonna find out about the world um funnily enough I never wanted to get out of here I wanted to stay probably living with my mother in Clamel for the whole rest of my life because I'm so close to her like and I still I'm really lucky she's still uh, very healthy and I see her every three weeks I suppose it was more that I wanted to I could see around me what women were meant to do and again I know I probably sound 100 I was only born in 85 but I could see the different roles that were available to young girls and women in my town and I didn't want to do any of them I didn't really see me in them um, so I wanted to find something different and I was good at school, you know, I was academic and I did achieve and mom and my sisters were very helpful in that. So I knew, like, sounds, I knew I could do something, I knew I could get to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. And a friend of mine said when I was doing my leave insert, you should go do counselling because you're always like talking to all the, the drunks and the alcoholics in town, which is not a nice way to put it, but that's how we say it. And that kind of sparked a, uh, an idea in me of, oh, I definitely want to work for people. But I don't want to be a counsellor. No, I don't want to do that kind of intense one-to-one. So what can I do? And there was a man who lived in Clanmel. He's, he's dead now. He was a homeless man. I won't say his first name because there's so few drinkers and stuff and homeless people in Clanmel back in the 90s. People would know him. But he used to always be around town drinking and, you know, bumming cigarettes off people and generally being a nice guy. But you could tell he mainly didn't have somewhere to live. And sometimes he did. And I would always end up like drunkenly talking to him after the nightclub while I was waiting for my taxi home. And he was always very kind. And it sounds very risky now. And I wouldn't really advise anyone to do that. <laughs> but he was very kind. And he'd wait with me with my friends. And he'd make sure we were safe. And I remember chatting to him about it. And he was telling me about um, this alcohol worker that he'd had in Ashiree, which is a treatment program. And that there were specific jobs for drug and alcohol workers, which sounds stupid now, but I did not know that because I know my parents never drank. I have no experience of alcohol outside of my own consumption of it. So then I went off and researched how to do that. So uh, I kind of always remember him because he definitely explained to me that there are jobs out there that sound like the one I was looking for. So That's interesting because when I spoke to Tony Duffin here in the this, in this same office, um, he, he pretty much was able to pinpoint the day when he, he met uh, 
the man on uh, Westminster yeah. Abbey uh, Plaza and uh, he just went over to talk to him and as a 15 year old and and I think he remember, I remember saying that it was his mom that said, well, Tony, that was the day I realized you were going to do something yeah. for other people. And I mean, you mentioned that you're yeah, drunkenly talking to this, uh, this person that was homeless, but I'm sure you, were you able to talk to him on a, on a normal day when you were passing by there? You weren't drunk, you were just, yeah. there, you were just happy to go and have a chat. Oh yeah, like he'd always, um, there was a period of time where I flirted with smoking, so I'd have smokes on me or a lighter and you'd kind of, it's always easier to talk to someone when you've got something to share like that, right? It's harder to go up cold and start, I knew he'd probably want to smoke or he'd have a lighter or I'd have smoke or whatever. Uh, that phase passed quite quickly, but you'd still kind of like chat to him. Um, yeah, he was a very, I suppose, being from, I mean, you're from Rome, you're from a huge city. It, to, being from a really rural place, he was the guy, you'd know where he was. So if you wanted to go talk to him or check in on him or maybe give him a sandwich, you'd, you'd know where to find him. Um, so I always knew him and he has passed away. He, he lived for a long time, actually. But I definitely, he was like the only person in the town who was visibly suffering from some kind of an addiction. So he stood out you know, and not everybody was very kind to him. And I suppose because of, like now as an adult, I understand that the things mom taught me about empathy through the psychiatric hospital just became a natural part of me. And I just naturally gravitated towards speaking to somebody who other people were stigmatizing. But I didn't get that then. I just was like, sure. oh, it's this guy. <laughs> I talk to this guy when I see him, you know. But looking back, I was less afraid of talking to somebody who maybe the community would have been afraid of because mom had taught me not to be afraid of people based on maybe certain issues that they have. Uh, which is nice because I think a lot of kids are taught to be quite afraid yeah. and it's not always necessary. No, and I think... and. and that's the one thing that caught my ear the other night was the, the stigmatization mm. of, of what we see every day in, in not just in town, everywhere around us. Um, but tell me about the clash, clamp down then. <gasps> right, so then there's the clash. So I was a big latecomer to the clash. So Green Day were my doorway into everything. Everyone has that kind of like, you know, and then you start reading their interviews in NME and who did they listen to? The Ramones. Who are the Ramones? <laughs> I have no idea. The Clash. Okay, they seem to talk about this band. And actually, you know, that other band that I like talk about the Clash as well. So then you send away for a Clash album and get it back in the post. And actually quite exciting because you have to wait. Like you have to wait like three or four weeks for this thing to come. And then you're going to put it on. You're like, I don't know if I'm going to like this or not. So you've already talked yourself into liking it because you spent so much money and time on getting the thing. <laughs> So definitely the Clash were one of those bands that I grew into because it's hard to kind of get them, I think, sometimes when you're a teenager, but also being Irish and being rural, a lot of it didn't connect with me. But Clampdown is listening to it, it kind of in my early 20s. It's a song that the lyrics of it, first of all, I love Joe Strummer because he's almost unintelligible. Like you really have to listen hard to hear the lyrics. You can't tell what he's saying most of the time. So you're listening and you're really attentive if you want to get the lyrics. And then when you do that, you hear amazing things in a song because sometimes we only hear 40% of a song. And there's a few key lines in the song, like, you know, um, anger is power and you can use it. I remember hearing that when I was in my early 20s and thinking, oh God, <laughs> nobody's ever told me that. He's so right. I don't need to walk around being angry at people for treating people certain ways or whatever. I can do something about it. And then when I came into work, 
I suppose I I'm quite lazy and I I wouldn't necessarily be a grafter right naturally some people are just like I get up at 6 a.m I work really hard all day and I go to bed and some people find ways to avoid doing things like that and I always being the baby in the family I always would have been a little bit more minded and I was worried coming into work even though I found the area I wanted to be in and the job I wanted to be in I was like I'm gonna become one of those people who just like gets up and has porridge every day. No offense, I do actually eat porridge every day. But, and just goes in and exists and disappears. And I, like, it sounds so egotistical now, but really when I was 19, I was really worried about this. I'm going to lose myself <laughs> in this world of like making money for other people or doing what you're told. And there's a couple of lines in that song, you know, you grow up and you calm down, you start wearing blue and brown and working for the clamp down. And then there's another part where it's like you've got somebody to boss around and it makes you feel big now and I remember listening to that and I was like just don't do that (laughs) that's all you have to do just don't do that thing just be who you are in work and don't become that and I suppose like lyrics are really important to me and I'm lucky because the genre of music that I kind of fell into accidentally when I was a kid but I learn more sometimes from musicians and songwriters who've lived than, I mean, I learn from people in my life, but they're this whole extra layer of like yeah. teachers. So clamp down. I still listen to it on the way into work sometimes <laughs> to remind myself. when you were talking on stage was you kept mentioning the people I worked for mm. and the first couple of times you mentioned I just in my head I had Anna Leafy oh, okay and yeah yeah I thought okay the people you work for your employer, employers and, but then it dawned on me you were talking about the people that you supply service to, yeah the people yeah come to Anna Leafy and I thought it was a wonderful way to put it uh, to say I'm, I'm working for these people the people yeah. that need our assistance so I guess the time is right to, to tell me a bit about what Anna Leafy does. I know Tony told us about it, but yeah. I'd like to know from you because you're more frontline, you're more, yeah. um, uh, I suppose, more involved in the day-to-day. Yeah, it's um, my job. I get the, the luxury of doing it. Yeah, yeah tell yeah. me all about your, your day and how, yeah. you, how you ended up here, first of all. Yeah, yeah, and definitely. And focusing on the frontline because I don't do frontline anymore, but it's like what our staff do, I'm so proud of. So I suppose I... I lied my way into my job. <laughs> most, uh, most people do. So, and then I just kind of held on with my white knuckles for years until I could do it. But when I was in, I did social care, a degree in DIT, which is now at TU Dublin. Because I was looking around at the degrees and people, like not my mom actually, she was amazing, but people push you in different directions. Like the principal of the school that I, I went to was lovely, but she was very ambitious for me in the wrong direction. She knew I'd get good points in the leaving cert and she wanted someone from her school to go do this course 
And I was like, nope, <laughs> I don't want to just live out my life the way you want me to. So I didn't want to do technical degrees. And I found social care, which just to me was like this. You can get a degree in working for people and working for communities and learning how to do that really well. Amazing. Um, and when I was there, we got to do site visits. Everything feels so by chance in my life, but I suppose that's how life is. And a friend of mine that I really liked on the course, Kifa, was like, oh, I want to go to Merchants Key Ireland. And I was like, oh, I want to go hang out with Kifa for the morning. I don't know who Merchants Key Ireland are, whatever. <laughs> and I suppose I had this interest in addiction, but I didn't realize I had it because nobody in my family has suffered from an addiction. So I didn't really kind of identify with it too closely. And then I ended up in Merchants Key and there was a guy there who still works there, Alan Dooley, he's team leader he's a cool guy and he was explaining needle exchange and again I was at the time I was 19 and I had just moved to Dublin when I was 18 and somebody was explaining why they would give clean needles to people to inject drugs to me and I was like what <laughs> it sounds kind of atypical um and he explained the ethos of it and I was like that makes complete sense harm reduction this thing I'd never heard of needle exchange this thing I'd never heard of because uh, that didn't exist in Tipperary when I was growing up that's a really great idea. I want to do that. So I researched who did those kind of things and to try and get a job there when I graduated. And the only people were Anna Liffey and Merchants Key. And a job came up in the Anna Liffey that I was so not qualified for, a project worker job. But I had a degree. So I just went in and kind of lied in my interview and pretended I'd done stuff with people that actually, I, I suppose I used my conversations with the chap in Clonmel that I used to know and I pretended he'd been a client in a place. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure they knew I was lying, but they saw potential and they hired me and I became a project worker in the Anna Liffey Drug Project when I was 21. And yeah, like we have a lot of staff in their early 20s now and a lot of staff who aren't in their early 20s and it's always good to have a mix. And I look at them and I think, God, was I that young when I started here? Like, did I look that young? No offense to our young staff. Wow. <laughs> it must have been terrifying. But It wasn't terrifying. It was, it was a bit scary in that I didn't know if I could do it. Do you know, do it right. It wasn't the environment, wasn't the people we worked for weren't. It was more like, oh God, maybe I shouldn't have lied my way into this job because now maybe I can't deliver a good enough service to these people who we were, oh wait, I'll figure it out. <laughs> so. what, really, what I'm really, really curious about is this 20-year-old girl, mm. doesn't matter if you're in Tipperary or from Dublin, yeah. so 20-year-old, yeah, you just spoke to a guy that was living homeless for a while, but in the safety of your own environment. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden, you're, you're faced with a project project worker. It's, yeah. I'm assuming, means hands-on. Carry cases, do needle... At the time, we didn't run needle exchange, but that came... So basically, the role was, and at the time, it was a little different now because we run a lot more services mm -hmm. now, but we had a full-time drop-in service for people who... Uh, use drugs actively and I suppose the important thing in the Anne Liffey we did then and we do now we target our services at people who find it tough to use other services because of maybe the level of drug use they have or how many times in a day they have to use drugs or maybe some of their anger or some of how they communicate with other people because of the experiences they've had so we try and wrap our services around those people who are at those point that point in their lives so rather than people who are a little bit more stable who we can help to use some of our partner services um and there's a lot of like active drug use involved in the lives of the people that we work for so you become a part of kind of knowing that and being around that when you work for people so that was different for me <laughs> 
And I suppose, like, I tend to have a real fake it till you make it type of attitude. And I tend to, like, even, you know, when I'm learning new things, people are like, you don't know yet, so just shut up, like, I'm telling you. But I tend, yeah, I know that, yep, it's fine. And fake it till I make it. So I was doing that to exude a kind of a helpful confidence so that the the people that I worked for, we call them clients for shorthand, weren't like, who's this one? (laughs) But really, like, they taught me, the team taught me, and the people we work for taught me. And I think... I I developed the technical skills that I needed on the team quickly because I was passionate about it and I had amazing people to teach me. But what I found really helpful when I started was that I didn't feel awkward around the people we worked for. I didn't feel awkward walking into a drop-in of 40 people, some of whom were really medicated, some of whom had had a really bad night the night before and some of whom just wanted to talk the head off me because they'd taken three trays of benzos and they make you really talkative (laughs) um that was like yep okay cool I'm used to chaos and I'm used to being in a kind of a chaotic environment so that's comfortable so which can sometimes it's not that it feels mad chaotic when you come into the Anne Liffey but it's noisy you know and there's a lot of things going on and you need to make this person a cup of tea while you're writing a court letter for that person and also drying that person's socks on the dryer and then after that you got to go to that social work meeting with someone so it's high energy it's high adrenaline um but you find people who love that, love working here. You That buzz of being really busy, doing things that you can see immediately helping people, doing other things that you can't see helping them, but you're hoping that in another couple of months it will. It's a, it's a pretty buzzy. And like literally physically our building is like the one that we're in now. There's multiple flights of stairs up and down and you're running up and down and running up and down and getting people's labor cards, getting the picture of their kid from their file that they want to look at for a couple of minutes because they're not seeing them this weekend and then running back up to put it back up. So you're doing lots of really kind of different things <laughs> in the space of a morning. Um, but yeah, so it was really, it was amazing. I lo- like I would say, I'd say my poor family and friends are still sick of listening to me talk about the Anne Liffey, but the first two years I worked here, I'd imagine the people around me had to exude a lot of patience because it was like I had found something that, other people knew about already because the Anne Liffey's existence is 1982. But I was like, this project does all this stuff for people. Like, listen, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, it's proper passion. Well, then uh, the island of lost souls by Blondie. Blondie. That's probably quite fitting. Yeah, Debbie Harry. She's amazing. I just love her. <laughs> amazing, yeah. She's incredible. Um, I suppose, like, she's the typical feminist but she's a total anti-feminist and she's all these contradictions wrapped up in one and I'm reading her her autobiography at the moment actually and learning obviously loads more about her and kind of what went on in her life and it's pretty incredible it makes me respect her even more but I remember her obviously her face is iconic in the Andy Warhol art and you know I'm really I'm really into aesthetics I like makeup I like trying to look nice and so I'm drawn to looking at stuff like that and her face was what I knew first and then like watching videos of her on like Top of the Pops and stuff. And she was it in the 70s and 80s when it comes to women in punk. It was Debbie Harry everywhere. And I love that. And uh, there's just something really... I love about Debbie Harry that she's very much a feminine woman. She's She gets loads of plastic surgery. She's aging disgracefully. She's very like open about that. And she's like, you can live your life any way you want and you can still be a feminist. You can be obsessed with your wrinkles and getting rid of them, but you can still work for women's rights. And I do love that about her because I think when you kind of become clearer that you are a feminist and you start learning about it, sometimes you can find different schools of thought that don't really fit with yours. 
because this feminism is, is different for everyone. And when I started kind of listening to her interviews, I was like, oh, this is something I can I can get on board with. I can do this brand of feminism. And obviously then you grow up and you kind of develop your own. But yeah. And then Island of Lost Souls, I think is just a really funky song. It's really brave. It's kind of like reggae. There's a little bit of rap. There's a bit of everything. It's so not punk, but that's punk, right? <laughs> And am I correct to saying you you were given a Woman of the Year award last year from, uh, from uh, Magazine? Yeah, that's a bit weird. <laughs> that's fantastic. You know, yeah, I'm on a list with other amazing women. Yeah, well, so that's amazing. It's amazing because obviously uh, it's not something that any, everybody can do. What you guys do here, it's not for for everybody. Mm. I'm sure yeah, it yeah, I'm sure that's you get okay. Applicants coming in, yeah. love the idea, love the, but then they can't stick with it. But yeah. Anyway, what I'd like to know more about is, is what you just mentioned there, running mm. up and down the stairs. Mm. And, you know, that, that picture of um, taking a photograph of a child that the guy or the girl hasn't been able to mm. see for a couple of years for whatever reason. Yeah. I mean, that level of uh, personal and human touch that mm. you guys need to attach to your job. And I know you're professionals. I know yeah. This. How, does, how does that work? I mean, how... Isn't that a heart-wrenching stuff? Like, you you have to do it. And it's something that Anna Liffey has taught me really well. And a couple of people that I've worked with a long time, Miranda and Peter and John Amara, um, we are addiction workers. We do addiction-specific work with people. And y- you've, you get a moment with someone where they'll allow you to do that work with them in the week. And the rest of the week you spend building trust with them, building a relationship with them and meeting their other needs so that they can allow you the half an hour, an hour in the week to do the addiction work. And that's like at our level, we are the first rung on the ladder for a lot of people when they're looking at dealing with their addiction. And a lot of people who come to us aren't ready to deal with their addiction. They want to be safer. They want to not have bloodborne viruses. And that is dealing with it in a way. But, you know, they come to us for the nurse or for whatever other services we have. So I learned quickly and the team do it in Limerick and in Dublin now, that all of the other 80% of stuff you do with someone allows you the 20% of the time where they'll allow you to look at their addiction with them and do that really kind of focused work. Um, And our job is to get people ready to go into kind of more higher threshold tailored addiction programs where people don't, people do much more addiction work with them because they don't have to build the trust because we've built the trust with them to use services. But it's, it's just humanity as well. Like you can't expect someone to sit down with you and go through a risk assessment of their injecting. Uh, you know, have you had unprotected sex in the last six weeks? Now I'm going to ask you about my sex work. Unless you are willing to do things for them and with them that they really need. Like, you know, ironing somebody's shirt before they go to court because they want to show up looking well. Getting the shirt with them in pennies, bringing it back. Um, and we have one of the things... and that's the kind of stuff that our staff do our staff help people get to their 
appointments to see their kids their supervised um, appointments with their kids they'll drive them we have rooms here that people can use for that they mind the parents after the kids go and they're broken and crying in the room because their kids are gone back to which is important like kids sometimes do need foster care and need to only see their parents at the weekend but there's a broken mother or father left in a room crying that our staff then take the time to take care of and that's part of their treatment plan because you can't expect someone to get bashed around by their daily life and to come into you every Wednesday at two o'clock all motivated to look at their their wheel of change so you have to be there with them the rest of the time if they allow you to and it's a privilege if they do but what about you guys your frontline staff yeah. you and the other 30 plus that are working here I mean that moment that is heartbroken mother or father sitting in the room Mm. son has been taken away what about you guys that you know that moment is quite hard yeah hard wrenching for both all of you yeah involved how how are you looked after in, after that i mean is there a counseling going on here yeah that? like we have for our team first of all like okay it starts with the team like the team leaning on each other your project worker colleagues like you know we do do external counseling and stuff and that is really important i'll talk about that in a sec but being able to turn around somebody on your own team who you trust who's been there with you and being able to support each other is powerful and that creates and we're so lucky in the Anlifi. like we have a lot of new staff at the moment and our team is forming again and in our limerick team it's a really established one and you can just see them supporting each other like i was a team leader for a while before I went into the head of services job and my job was to go in and debrief the staff and debrief the team among other things if there was a traumatic incident and you'd walk in and the team had already done it for each other and you would just be there to support them and mind them but you want to like the culture in a place is so important and this isn't about having someone to boss around to make you feel big it's about having creating teams that will support each other but not dumping the responsibility on them to do it, making sure structures are in place to do it, but allowing that stuff to happen organically. Um, so then we have team leaders who provide supervision and they will always be, if something happens, your boss will be there. So our team leaders do the same jobs as our frontline staff as well. They carry cases, they do needle exchange, and then they just have more time in the week for management. So they can empathize. And then we have a lovely woman who comes in and does external debriefing but it's also there's I suppose it depends on where you're at as a person in the job like definitely in my early 20s and maybe it's the same for some of our staff who are younger maybe not maybe they're just more mature than I was when I was 21 but you know I I definitely took more on emotionally then just because I was more emotionally immature and I over identified with things and took it on took it home but you learn you know as a human you learn not to do that that's part of you growing up as well in your job and you learn to park things but it's also like sometimes people and I think it's lovely and, and I know why they do it but they kind of say oh, you're great and how do you do it and stuff and in our line of work not just in the Anliffy but in community work there's an ego trap you can fall into if you believe that and if you allow yourself to kind of take on the trauma of your service users and wear it as a badge of honor, it's very dangerous. Like, you have to be humble. This is not my trauma. I get to go home. This is not my day. So I'm not going to take it on and go home to my boyfriend and cry about it because it's actually her trauma that she has to live with. So there's a bit of kind of maturity required. To, but obviously, sometimes if you've managed a really heavy overdose or if, I mean, we had a lady who miscarried in the Anliffy once, I'll never forget it, because it's one of those things where you're just physically with somebody going through something that's like, this is happening. Then, of course, you're not going to just wipe that off and go home and push, you know, you need to do a piece of debriefing after that. 
Um, but what we always say, and it sounds a little bit like, oh, it's grand anyway, but somebody on the team will always end up saying, isn't it amazing that that happened here, though, that we could be here with them? Isn't it so much better that it didn't happen down the alleyway behind McDonald's? And that's what keeps us going, because it's, it's right, you know? We're lucky to be here. Fantastic. Forever Young, cover version, Pretenders. Yeah. Great band. Great band. I didn't know that till I was about 30. <laughs> I missed loads. So I was always aware of the Pretenders because like, he couldn't not be. Um, but yeah, Chrissy Hine just didn't wear enough lipstick to attract me, I think. I was like, I was always looking to the shiny things and she was a little bit more of a real rocker woman, you know? I was like, oh, who's she? I'm not into it. I'm into Joan Jett, who's kind of got tattoos. Um, but my sister is a huge Pretenders fan and there's, I can't remember, is it 10,000 Miles that comes on at Christmas and Tara loves it. And we went to see her at Electric Picnic together a couple of years ago. And my poor sister, I'd say she was like, I've been telling you this for 10 years. But I was like, oh my God, she's amazing. Somebody should like, like her. But I just watching Chrissy Hind on stage and the power. And I guess she's in her 60s now, maybe. She's kind of Iggy Pop age era. Uh, the power behind her and her voice is incredible. And I read her autobiography there last year and just she, that woman has survived. Like if you ever get a chance to read it, she is, she's a scrapper. Like she survived through loads of things. And then like, it's a cover of a Bob Dylan song, obviously Forever Young. But I don't know, it's just a very sweet song with really sweet sentiment in it about being kind, you know, and reminding you to be kind and to, to give back. And the way she sings it, her voice is beautiful. Like the way she sings it, it's just really... It's one of those songs that'll make you cry if you let it. <laughs> May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every road. May you stay. Another thing you said the other night on the, on the live podcast, which mm. I think is going out this week, uh, probably a couple of weeks ago, whatever, whenever cool. this time this, yeah. this goes out, but you said one thing, and I'm, on my way home that night, you mentioned, look, there'll be people on the street as you're going home, and there's a whole lot of reason why they're on the street tonight. Okay, you don't have to give them the money, but mm. maybe just a smile, yeah. instead of ignoring them, because you mentioned it. The important, like the effect that being ignored for somebody on the street mm. does to the, the, their mental health. And consciously that night, as I was walking home, and uh, then I was walking to, to the car, I met two or three unfortunate yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And I was very conscious of turning and just showing my face. And mm. I thought it was a lovely, lovely thing to, to hear from somebody who works uh, in the field every day. But I guess my question is how. Do we change the attitude to people like me, a middle yeah. class, normal character mm. that is, it's not my problem, really, it's not my yeah. problem, that's what we all say when we walk through town because we're doing something, it doesn't have to be town, there's problems everywhere, yeah. but how do we change my attitude to homelessness and uh, drugs uh, addiction, addiction and mm. so on, because I think that's, that's, to me is the key more so than and I know we, we can talk about the, the decriminalization yeah. and the, the injection centers, which I think it all should happen. 
But how do we change that attitude from the ground? Up? Yeah, yeah, because that is like, I like, I'll just nod to national policies because I know Tony would have talked about it more. But the national policies do teach the community how to think about people, okay. you know, and that is important because. You know, national policies around smoking outside has changed attitudes of younger people about what's appropriate. And, you know, national policies about people who use drugs being criminal. And, you know, I know that the minister has okayed the injection centre and unfortunately it's not happening yet. It probably will. But our old policies that I grew up under of seeing people dying of overdose and not having any solutions to them, it teaches the community to think, well, I suppose those lives aren't worth saving then. It's their fault. Lives worth saving are saved, though, because the, the, you know, the health services do put money into lives worth saving, you know, and that's not the intention of the policies, but it's an unintended consequence that you teach people how to think about a vulnerable group. Like, you know, with the traveling community um, for years, not having a recognition of their own ethnic background and being a separate ethnicity that taught our society in lots of ways to to disrespect them and now that's changed and hopefully changing but policy is one thing but I suppose I think you have to empathize with people who do judge the people we work for they're not stupid like they're not nasty people it's a tricky one right to think about and I think people get very overwhelmed by addiction as an issue and homelessness as an issue, two different things, but almost always interlinked in some people's lives. Because it's like, oh God, what can we do? Mm-hmm. And that feeling of, of like, what can we do? Is there a march I can go on? There's not, I don't know what to do. You kind of sometimes naturally look the other way then because you feel totally impotent. You don't know what to do to make things better. And you can't go around giving everyone your money because it's actually really expensive to live in Ireland. So... I can understand why sometimes get people get a bit like, I do not want to think about it because, you know, maybe I'm really worried about plastic and maybe I'm really worried about veganism. Maybe I'm really worried about loads of things and I just can't take on another thing. And I don't mean that in a flippant way. No, I no, really I get yeah, that. Like people are a bit like fatigued by worrying sure. about things. Sure. But I think, and I know I said this the other night, but I can't say it enough. Language is so important for those of us who have had an opportunity to maybe learn a bit more, empathize a bit more with people who use drugs in a really problematic way or in a not problematic way, how we speak about people around other people and how we challenge other people and inform them on their attitudes is so important. Like I work in the Analyphy, so I see it as my duty to pull people up left right and center <laughs> at social events it goes down great at weddings when I'm someone's plus one I'm like well actually you can't say that about people but like I'm not letting an opportunity pass to pull someone up if they speak incorrectly about the people we work for and sometimes like you learn through life and through working in the analytic and I learned a lot through the repeal canvassing kind of training and work I did there are some people you're better off not having that conversation with because they're so far over in the corner of judging people that you're just going to end up in a fight and that's not good for anyone. But for people who are on the fence or just don't quite know, there's a nice, soft, kind way to inform people about, you know, the fact that people who use drugs are people. They're not drug addicts or junkies and labeling people does dehumanize them. It takes us one step away from their humanity. You're a junkie first. Maybe you're a dad second you know no you're a person first and you have this issue um you know you're a person with an eating disorder you're a person who sells sex you're a person so reminding people of that and also reminding people that it's not easy there's no easy answer like people like to ask me things like how many of your clients get clean well uh, it's not that simple like and i'm sorry i think we have to be mature as a society that it's not that simple um 
And even that language around clean and dirty, well, there's no dirty, but like if we're saying they're clean when they're drug free, then we're inferring they're dirty when they're not. So I think it is really a ground level. Like, you know, I know it's not really comparable with the abortion rights campaign because I know there was a referendum coming up and all the rest. But at the same time, the types of conversations that I proactively had around that time with way more people in my life than I ever would have bothered to talk to about. The whole time I was thinking, oh my God, if I just talked to this many people proactively about our clients, and if my sisters did, who really care as well, they do different jobs, but if all of us took it upon ourselves to learn a bit more about the issue and the people that I work for, and then to go out and talk to people in their lives. Like, I think in general, the Irish society, not Irish people, but the society that we're made up of, all different kinds of people, we are pretty empathic. We are pretty caring. And we do kind of have a default position of wanting everyone to be all right. It's just sometimes we need to be taught a little bit more and informed um, and not shouted at, right? Because there's nothing as you know nothing as bad as a fascist lefty (laughs) screaming at you that you're wrong because you said the wrong thing you know you have to bring people along with you um and just be good with it i think the other thing is we do have to accept that drug use is a reality in life and that that's not giving up on people and it's not giving up on the kids to come who you don't want to see getting embroiled in drug use it's just actually being a realist and as much as I have really romantic parts of my life where I get to kind of idealize about things when it comes to life issues I'm a realist and I think that's important when you're living in society be real about what's going on very good so actually the next song Aslan ah Christy yeah <laughs> and, and he, he wrote an amazing uh, biography yeah and, and he talks obviously about his addiction and, yeah and why Aslan then why Aslan um I love Irish music, right? They didn't feature on the list too much yet, but I love Irish music and I love people singing in an Irish accent and Christy Dignam sings in in an Irish accent. And I didn't actually realise, I liked Aslan when I was younger and I didn't realise Christy had an addiction or anything because you don't really, you know, know that when you're a kid. Um, And I remember seeing a headline on the front of, I'd say it was the Daily Mail or a red top that my mom used to buy about, you know, junkie Christy Dignam and being like, oh, okay, is he a person? Is he like X who I know in town? Oh, okay, I didn't know that. That's kind of amazing that he can manage a whole band at the same time. Incredible. And then kind of learning about him. I haven't read his book yet. I think I might be getting it for Christmas. Um, But watching, he did a documentary, I think, on RTE and really learning about him and how he fell into addiction or whatever way you want to put it. And actually only realized when he was in a therapy group about his abuse that came up through a therapy group. He had buried it, as many people do. And then looking at this guy who's been through cancer a number of times and still incredible. I've seen them live a couple of times and I've seen them in small venues. They're playing in Holt soon as well. I'm getting to go there. But you're looking at this guy who's still so full of passion. And for me, this is that song. Like, obviously, people know Crazy World and, and this is a big song as well. But he his he's written that song from so many different perspectives and the empathy he has for different parts of the community and people who've been shot on basically for want of a nicer way to say it is so humbling like I can't listen to that song without getting emotional I just think the depth of his voice plus his lyrics and his performance when you get to see him um and he's a survivor and I love about Christy as well that he's a real good example of someone who was really stigmatized like this country did not 
do well with his addiction at the time you know looking back now on media that I wouldn't have been kind of old enough to read we judged him you know as a failure in the states he let us down he could have been the next you too and he was hated uh, apart from in Finglas and now to see him as a hero that people really get behind and I kind of think with Christy like I use Christy Dignam a lot <laughs> at those wedding conversations I'm like but you know someone like Christy Dignam like nobody judges him now they empathise with them and I think without meaning to be he's a real advocate for the people we work for and he's a good example of a survivor and that's I love that passionate about what you do and you mentioned your your hometown a couple mm. of times and and those people and I don't want to know the specific yeah yeah what happened then I mean what happens in rural Ireland in in this world of addiction in this world I mean I know yeah you know, if you do a great job here and, mm. and there's a couple of centers here and there's plenty of people attending but what's happening in Clonmel today I mean is, is those guys and um, hopefully some of them are no longer addictive yeah too, but some of them probably still are yeah and yeah what's happening to them and definitely like when i go home now and just thinking about clan mel because uh, like you could replicate this in loads of towns but i would definitely see the impact of drugs more physically and visibly on the street like uh more people begging more like empty tablet packets on the street and more people who who you can tell by looking at them are suffering you know from either opiates or something else and also we've had a lot of deaths a good friend of mine is a used to be an emt a fireman in clamel and he's a trainer now and he talks about all the overdoses he responded to in the clanmel arms which is now being done up but it was a squat for a long time people would just go in there and use and die in there and it was actually it's where kids shows used to be i saw bosco there when i was like four <laughs> so i was like jesus christ That's um, the hotel, used to be. hotel yeah yeah so it was it's been bought and been done up now okay. but it was where people hid away right if you know clanmel anyone no, is this yeah it's in the middle of town the clanmel arms just right on the shore right there you go well it closed and it became a bit of a squat and to think i remember andrew um who who runs trading services now talking to me about all the overdoses he'd responded to and thinking jesus like that's in the middle of people are having to hide away in plain sight in the middle of our town and use and up at saint patrick's well which is a big kind of tourist spot and a lovely place there's a lot of uh sharps and needles left around I'm like people that grew up kind of similarly to how I grew up are being forced up and out and into squats and down alleyways in the town I grew up in to inject because there's nowhere else to do it or and that's really sad I don't know you always care more about where you're from right it's really that really made me sad because you know that maybe somebody's aunt is walking past the door of the Clamad Arms while they're in there injecting because it's a small town but that's the other thing uh, that is sometimes it's hard for um, for us walking past somebody to, yeah. to again to humanise it to think mm. that person is somebody's son somebody's daughter somebody's yeah. mother yeah and that's really 
But okay, well look, um, mm. just tell me, what do you do then to decompress? What's your, uh, what do you do when you go out tonight? Uh, is that yeah. yeah, well, tonight I'll go home and sit on the couch. Uh, <laughs> for me, like everyone has their own thing. Sure. Me, I'm newly very into fitness, which okay. apparently, again, I catch on kind of late to things that other people kind of already knew were a good idea. Mm. So I've started exercising a lot. Like the last year of a really good kind of morning, I'm up at half six and in the gym and I do my eating thing. Porridge. Yeah, eating porridge. I'm that guy. <laughs> I don't wear blue or brown ever. <laughs> Specifically. <laughs> but yeah, so that for me is good for my head because my job actually used to be really physical and active and now I sit at a desk a lot and then your stress turns into a different kind of stress it turns into something that's tightened up in your back and is jumping through your body at night when you can't sleep so you need to physically exercise that out so that's really good for the head and also very centering like I love mindfulness I'm terrible at it I'm too all over the place I keep trying that's the point of it I think but for me physical exercise is much more kind of centering because you're focusing on your body and then I love animals so I have a cat and I spend a lot of time looking at her (laughs) and rubbing her and just kind of that's how I decompress and I read and like I mean definitely I know like obviously a big part of this podcast is music but like if you cut me in half music would fall out it's a pity I can't sing or anything (laughs) but I escape into music an awful lot and I make sense of the world in there a lot so I have in my house I have like a a little box room that is my music room so all my CDs are in there and my player and I've got a chair and I will literally on a Sunday just go in and put some CDs on and lose myself into them and then go off and be an adult again. Yeah. And I think it's important to have a place to go to well, kind that's of... mindfulness, right? Yeah, exactly. In Except it's like rancid and misfits. So <laughs> it's pretty loud <laughs> mindfulness. But yeah, so they're it's, my it's things. Your and it's your It's your space. Yeah. Exactly. And also, like, I think all of us do the thing. Well, not all of us, but I certainly did in my 20s of going out and having a good few pints to get over a tough week. Um, yeah, but you can't do that forever. And so I definitely grew out of that and was like, actually, maybe I should go do some yoga. <laughs> You're just growing up. Don't yeah, exactly. Happen. Slowly. <laughs> so this, this band, I can never pronounce it. Oh, Wyvern Lingo. Wyvern Lingo. Lingo. Yeah, they're incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I only got to know them through a previous guest. Actually, ah. Funny enough, he works um, with children with addiction in oh. the Leary. Amazing. Yeah, he was one of the guys who mentioned they were ah, so okay. They're cool. They're really like they're a band first and foremost. Obviously, they're musicians, but we all perceive people the way we want to. So I see them as like social activists who happen to play music. Because <laughs> when you listen to their their music, it's it's that. So they are um, an all female band. Um, I think from Dublin, but maybe some of them from Wicklow or Kildare. So excuse me in advance if I'm wrong on that. And they have a gorgeous song called out of my hands and the first time I heard it to my shame was when Karen from the band was playing at a fundraiser for the Anna Liffey that a lovely man called Lewis Kenny put together off his own back and she sang this song I knew who Wyvern Lingo were but I hadn't she did this really stripped back acoustic version of out of my hands and it's about a person presumably her 
It's written from the perspective of this guy who this young one has given a lecture to outside Mulligans about him being apathetic and not caring about society. And they're talking about junkies and scum and they're talking about migrants. And she's trying to explain to him that, like, you have to care about this. You're part of society. And he's trying to say, well, it's not my problem. I have to look the other way. And I mean, she was singing that and I was like, "Ooh, wow. How Because I don't know how old they are. I presume they're younger than me. Maybe they're in their 20s. But it when I was listening to her and then getting to talk to her and talk to other people around kind of her age who are probably only 10 years younger than me but that's a big gap sometimes in your life experience of how it is it really helped me to understand how passionate um people who people call hipsters and snowflakes are you know and I think it's really crappy like we do that to people we call them hipsters and snowflakes and we stigmatize them and label them and throw them off just because they make their own granola you know whatever but this kind of depth of compassion and empathy that was in a few people I was speaking to that night and that song when I listened to it over and over again after I'm like there's so many young wonderful people out there who really care and we see it we see people marching um and that song to me is amazing because it's also like every conversation I've ever ever had with some guy outside Mulligan's (laughs) was just being rude to one of my clients and you're trying not to fight with them but you're trying to explain so but they're lovely and also there are more all-female bands now especially on the Irish scene there's pillow queens and some really great people but it's still unusual to see that it's unusual to see a female bassist you know so I love that question to ask in a minute mm. but first uh, just well you just mentioned about snowflakes and so on and mm. again it's labels which is yeah. especially now with social media we were able to label everybody yeah we bully people yeah. yeah but you just mentioned something that I'm very passionate about it but I'm I believe that the next generation um, I, I believe we're gonna be okay yeah I believe our next generation is gonna be all right mm. um, What's your view? What's the, oh. what's the future, you reckon? And I know it's a big... I know. Question, but. Honestly, come here. If you'd asked me that two years ago, I'd have been like, I don't know anyone under 32, so I can't answer you, <laughs> to be honest. But I've spent the last two summers getting a chance to work at festivals with Anne Liffey, volunteering, doing welfare work at Electric Picnic and Life, where I've met incredible people from 17 up to 24, you know? And I like okay year one this was our third year of doing it this summer and we did life festival for the first time electric picnic for the third time and fair play to them i always have to say it fair play to them for having us in because it's not an easy thing to have drug workers in doing welfare work you have to be brave um so the first couple of years i was focused on where are my leaflets am i doing this right are the volunteers okay and this year was the first year because we have a great team of volunteers i kind of got to relax into it and really chat to the young people we were working for and oh my god like they're so compassionate they're so mislabeled (laughs) by our media and by our social media and maybe by aspects of our government who in now and coming in the future like they're want to mind each other in my experience and want to do something you know because i was at the picnic and i saw you guys there yeah 
just for people don't don't know what's happening there, you guys provide a great service. Which just just explain. Oh yeah, yeah. Words, what it's yeah. Like, it's, it's a lot of mothers. It's welfare. Listening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's really. Oh, we're it's brilliant to be able to be there. So at Electric Picnic and at Life Festival this year, we're in the welfare tent and we're on outreach. Drug workers who are volunteering their time. Uh, some from the Analyphy, some from our partner agencies, our friends who put on an Analyphy t-shirt and volunteer for us. And we go around giving people advice on how not to use drugs at a festival, because to be honest, that's the best thing to do. It's just not a place to use drugs for the first time or different drugs for the first time. But then we encourage people to be honest with us, you know, because we're, we're not judgy and we're not doing a just say no message. Be honest with us if you're going to, and let's talk about the safer ways of doing that. There's no safe way, but we give safer tips um, that similar to the HSE advice that they give in their campaign on drugs.ie, which is really good to look at as well. And then we do all the minding that if somebody is like, I just need to vomit for ages, <laughs> they do it in the welfare tent with us and the medics check in on them. Or if someone is very emotional because they're coming down off drugs and alcohol, or maybe they've had sex the night before that was consensual, but they regret. And now they really want to talk to somebody just to just to sort their head out. And then maybe some of them want to go home because they're done and they can't take it. And we help them get in contact with their parents and, you know, support. Now, they're not kids, like, you know, they're young adults, but it's good to have a safe place to land. So some, some people brought their friends in. Oh, yeah, which, Andre, yeah. Fabulous, like, there was a, there's two things, super quickly to tell you, that taught me everything I need to know. So uh, yeah, I, there was two stories. One from one of the festivals, this young guy brought his girlfriend in and she was totally like I mean he carried her in and the medics immediately were worried code blue do the medical work at the festivals they're cool really good people um and they were really worried about her and they immediately had her up on the trolley they have like a hospital set up and they tubes everywhere and it was worrying and he stayed with her for ages in the medical tent and like I mean hours and then the medics were like look her condition isn't improving we're going to transfer her to the local regional hospital that was grand and then he was like okay cool well here's her stuff I'll leave it with the welfare workers and he was going to leave and we'd been bringing him cups of tea and stuff and kind of leaving him alone because he looked distraught so we were just keeping an eye and I said are you not going to go with your girlfriend like or do you need money for a taxi or what do you need he's like oh no I don't know that girl I've never met her before I just found her kind of outside a portaloo curled up in a ball and I thought I better take her to the, the hospital tent and I was like but you stayed for I mean hours Andrew he was there for like four hours and he was like well I wasn't gonna leave her on her own but now I know she's okay because they'll call her parents from the hospital and oh god honestly I was like don't cry <laughs> like this young man who could have been off doing what the whole world perceives 18 year old boys to do but he wasn't he was there minding her and this other chap ran up to one of my colleagues not me with a wheelie bin flying up to the welfare tent. I was like, and they were like, why is this guy bringing a, and there was, his friend was in it. He couldn't physically move him. So he's like, if I throw him in a wheelie bin and wheel him up to the welfare tent, I mean, who does that? So I know there are only a couple of people, but there were such caring things going on at those festivals. I really think we're okay. I think if we don't, if we don't stigmatize the next generation to come and if we empower them with what they need to make a change and if we step back at the right time and let them do it then we're going to be good great now the personal question i have for you is the tattoos oh yeah <laughs> and uh, you have loads of tattoos yeah there in your arms and you mentioned i have uh, foo fighters and they didn't even make the list <laughs> <laughs> 
what's the with the tattoos when did you start and when are you gonna stop uh never gonna stop till well i'll stop when i only have my neck and my hands left because i've promised my mother i will not tattoo my neck or my hands although this is creeping close to my hand but <laughs> so i love tattoos i got my first one when i was 26 because even though I am a risk taker, there's cautious sides to me. So I was like, maybe now I won't do that till I'm older. So I've got a big one on my ribs from Snake Bite, two doors down. And then this is from the Ink Factory. And that's from a really cool woman called um, Keelan. So she's Dinky Ink. So I just love them. I think they're all an expression of me. Sometimes, like, I guess I am a passionate person. I kind of think everybody is. But then sometimes I'm like, oh, no, maybe I get a little bit more excited about things than some people do. And sometimes I just get an overwhelming sense of, oh, my God, I really love that band. Or I really love, like, I was sitting in my mom's garden and she had roses out. Uh, she's got a lovely rose garden. And there was a couple out. And it was just a really nice day. The sun was shining. I was like, I need to capture this moment in a tattoo on my arm. And it just does that for me. It captures things and I stick them on me and then I carry them with me, you know? So you probably will never see me with a Tweety Bird tattoo, hopefully. But everything that I have on me is either a moment in my life or a person or something that means a lot to me that I just want to, to ink onto me, you know? And for somebody worse with addiction, is tattooing addictive? Oh my God, yes. I started <laughs> off with a small one that's now stretched the whole way. <laughs> No neck, no hands. That's all I'm promising. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And uh, listen, I'll ask everybody for a couple of words of wisdom, a quote, anything. Oh, Jesus. The quote, anything gets you up in the morning. Oh, can I steal one from you Hosier? Uh, this actually might even be a complete misquote because I'm not sure what he says in his song, but I think in one of his songs he says, um, talk to every stranger, the stranger, the better. Walk with every stranger, the stranger, the better. And that might end up tattooed to me at some stage. (laughs) (laughs) Fabulous. And we're going to leave it with the Pogues, If I Should Fall From Grace. Oh yeah, Shane McGowan. Fabulous. Beautiful. Shane is from Tipperary. I don't care how much of England he has in him, he's from Tipperary. (laughs) That's who he is. And he's proud of that. And I love Shane McGowan. I love Pogues. Tony's another huge Pogues fan. I remember starting to work here and then starting to work more closely with Tony when he became my boss and realized he was a Pogues fan, thinking, oh my Jesus, like if he had to build a boss, <laughs> he'd be a harm reduction advocate and a punk Pogues fan. So great, I'm staying here for 13 years. And then that happened. But yeah, I love him. He, he has a massive addiction problem. He does not want to stop using. He wants to do less of it so he can be safer. And like how much more of a harm reductionist can you get? And I love trad music and I love punk music, so I love the Pogues. Fantastic. Well, Don Russell, really appreciate your time. Thank you. That was so fun. Thank you.